there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are Courtney Stith and Andre Carlisle, who host the terrific new podcast, Diaspora United, centering black women in domestic and global soccer. We've had some great guests lately, including John Arnold, Santiago Solari, and Chris Richards. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them. We'll have Courtney and Andre on soon, but we're going to start by breaking down the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right. Hope you enjoyed your Easter Sunday. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, you know, it was it was a calm day. It was uh, it was nice. I mean, not that I'd go out and do anything anyway, but just kind of relaxed and enjoyed a nice Sunday afternoon. Glad to hear that. I spent far too much time working on my taxes uh, with uh, <laughs> soccer going on in the background. Easter-wise, not a huge observer, though I have yet to have a Cadbury cream egg this year, which is a real failure on my part. There was a time in my life when I probably ate upwards of 20 to 30 Cadbury cream eggs every Easter season, and it's zero at this point. Wow. Yeah, you've, you've got to rectify that. I mean, I imagine at your local grocery store, they will be 50% off starting tomorrow, so I would, uh, I would give that a go. <laughs> you know what's all, something else I noticed? When you have big Champions League games midweek, like the quarterfinals this week, all of the really, like, the teams involved in Champions League, so really good teams, play on Saturday. Yeah. So there's a big imbalance in a weekend like this. A lot of great games on Saturday, not so many on Sunday. So I, was, I actually watched more soccer on Saturday. Um, one of those games was the first one back, and I thought we might get eased back in after the international break. <laughs> and instead... Chelsea 2, West Brom 5 at Stamford Bridge. And the way I went through this was, I, I actually was going to record it and watch it, but then I, I, I slept in a little bit. It was just a shade after 8 a.m. Eastern on Saturday. And I look on my phone, and it has an alert saying, Polisic scored. And so I'm like, oh, man, I should get up and watch this thing live. And so I go and, wa- and turn on the TV. It's already two to one West Brom at that point. And Chelsea has lost Tiago Silva to a dumb red card. Yeah. And, and then it only proceeds to get stranger and stranger as West Brom turns into Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. They were the so good. <laughs> they were so good. I, I mean, I, like I, I co-hosted a podcast about Chelsea, so like I have to think about it from a Chelsea lens. But I was kind of watching it, going, "Wow, this West Brom performance is incredible." <laughs> Sam Allardyce's West Brom, like <laughs> in danger of relegation, um, with just probably the most surprising scoreline we've seen all, all season. I'm including the nine goals that, that Southampton uh, conceded uh, in one game. But uh, I also want to talk Christian Pulisic here because he gets a goal. He, he starts a game under Tuchel, which is a good thing, gets a goal, and then comes off after 45 minutes. And at first, I'm like, that's a little bit of an odd substitution 
you know, Mason Mount comes on to replace him. So I would have thought it would have been a forward since they needed goals, but why did he come off? And it turns out, we, as we learn afterward with some Zapruder film video, uh, <laughs> Polisic apparently injured his hamstring coming out of the tunnel. Is that what happened? So the Zapruder film video showed Christian Polisic kind of doing some warm-up sprints, right, to try and get himself in a good place. And then from there, uh, it was reported, I believe Thomas Tuchel came out and said, he said to me, I'm not going to last if I play on this muscle, so it would probably be best if I leave the game now. Which, and as you said, for Chelsea, they already used one sub to adjust their system with Thiago Silva going out. Uh, they took out Hakim Ziyech for uh, Andreas Christensen to come in the game, so it already adjusted the system. Then you lose an attacking player. You'd imagine if Pulisic were fit, he would have gone the full 90 because they needed to come back and probably win the game. I mean, uh, you know, a draw wouldn't have done them a ton of good considering what was around them in the Champions League. You didn't know that Leicester would lose. You didn't know that Spurs would drop points uh, to Newcastle with West Ham still to play. But... Yeah, I mean, it was important that Pulisic came off at, and in that moment. And again, you're just kind of left scratching your head as to when is he going to have a regular run of games? Why does this hamstring, calf, those kind of muscle injuries keep popping up? He seems to be in really good shape. It doesn't seem to be a shape thing. It just seems like his muscles can't withstand. And even like, you notice, for example, the difference between the almost like the gait of Mason Mount and Christian Pulisic. Mason Mount plays in every game. It doesn't seem like he's ever going to get hurt. And Christian Pulisic, just like the effort it takes to get sprints off and to get into good positions, it just seems to be a bit more effortless for Mount. So this is a big concern, and I honestly don't know what the fix is. It just seems like he just has this chronic problem. Yeah, there's not much more to say, I don't think, at this point. You know, it, it's it's really sad. Pulisic's a 22-year-old guy, uh, still in the very early parts of his career, but he certainly has established now a reputation for getting injured very often, you know, and, and there are players like Aryan Robin who had very good careers, but they also got reputations as being chronically injured. And uh, for Christian Pulisic's sake, I hope he can get back soon again. I hope he, uh, you know, can, can finish this season uh, on, a, on a positive. There's a lot to play for for Chelsea still uh, this season. That was obviously the first loss that Tuchel has suffered Certainly didn't expect West Brom to be his first defeat. <laughs> uh, but the game can be unpredictable, well, my I, friend. I, I do want to kind of note, though, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this on the last pod that you and I did together, Brendan Aronson's performance for the national team obviously had me feeling uh, incredibly well. And I do think that now going forward, from a national team point of view, like, for example, you went into the last World, the last World Cup the U.S. were in with Josie Altidore as the number nine, and you needed him to be the number nine, and then he got hurt in the first game, and the U.S. really struggled to come up with a plan up top after that. They tried Clint Dempsey. Obviously, Chris Wondolowski came on and had the moment that everyone remembers in the game against Belgium, but that's all they got. That's all they got. Whereas, I guess now, you feel a little bit better about the fact that Pulisic is struggling with injury because there's cover there, right? If you know, has to start from the left, if Aronson has to start from the left, you feel okay. Even Sebastian Legette in a pinch in a, in a difficult game where you have to defend more, but... It's not as imperative that Pulisic is part of the national team. That's a good thing. But also, it is still a huge bummer because he's a massively creative and impactful player. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking in, in national team terms about the 14 World Cup qualifiers taking place over five windows from mm -hmm. this September to March, short time frame. You have to feel like for any of those three-game windows, 
even if Polisic's healthy, I don't see how you can play him, start him in all three of, of, mm-hmm. of the games in a particular window. But I guess my question for you would be, let's just throw this out there. How many of those 14 World Cup qualifiers do you think Christian Polisic will end up playing in for the United States? I think he'll end up playing, well, <laughs> health permitting, um, but if we assume a, a clean bill of health, I imagine he'd play in most of them. I just think he will end up coming off the bench a lot more than you probably would have thought four years ago, right? You would have figured, build a team around him, he's heading for the moon, and he's going to start every game and play every minute. That's no longer the case. Like, And, and I think if you look at, for example, a, a set of three games, right? Start him in the first one, rest him and have... And, and in the first one, he comes off after 60 minutes. Then he comes off the bench in the second one. And maybe depending on where it's at, start him in the third one. And depending on where the U.S. is and kind of their level of desperation. But I kind of think at this point, super sub might be the best role for him. And this is at club level and at national team level. Because I, I just don't know if you can go into a game thinking, we need this guy to be incredible. And if he gets hurt, then that kind of completely throws the plan up in the air. Like, I don't know. Like, and I, I wonder how much, like, from a coach's perspective, like someone like Greg Berhalter or even Thomas Tuchel is thinking, all right, I'm building my team and I'm counting on this person to start. How much does it change when the injury happens? And so... I, I don't know what a coach's thinking is in terms of, you know, relying on a player to, and building things around him when that player has... I, I, I've never believed in injury-prone, but I, I think it's inarguable at this point that Christian Pulisic is injury-prone. I mean, we've already heard Tuchel say, like, at one point, I always saw Christian as a 20-minute, 30-minute player yeah. uh, going back to his Dortmund days, and so you're like, oh, no. But I don't know how Greg Burhalter looks at it. I do think it's a little wild that we're sitting here talking about a 22-year-old who is the best-known player on the U.S. men's national team in terms of, even if he's healthy, ration his minutes during World Cup qualifying. But I also am not going to assume that he's going to be healthy the whole time. So when I ask the question, how many of the 14 World Cup qualifiers do you think Christian Pulisic will play in? If I'm answering that question, I am going to assume that he's going to not be healthy for all five windows. And so I would argue, I would throw out there maybe eight, yeah. you know? I mean, like, will, will Christian Pulisic play in half of the U.S.'s World Cup qualifiers? I don't know. And, and, that's, and that's a bummer to even say. Yeah, and it does put a bit of pressure on the players who are coming through. The good news is you feel like they can, right? Like, yeah. you feel like no matter who you put in that area, and like you, you like... I imagine at some point, like, Paul Ariola will have a return into the national team. I don't know how much uh, U.S. men's national team fans are fired up about that, but he will. Greg Berhalter trusts him. And so you're going to have other options that can play the left and right positions. So I I think you feel okay. Now, the ideal is that your best player is fit all the time. And I, I really am curious how that can happen, right? Like, what because like so like for example Steph Curry was perpetually injured his he had ankle problems and they like reconfigured his body essentially to like it, they changed his gait they changed the way that he operated like is there a, a large scale almost experiment that you can do with Pulisic here to help him kind of be a fully fit player is that something you can do in the off season like because it's the only thing that's stopping him and so I don't know if there's anything that he can do other than hope he doesn't get hurt yeah. I mean, it's just a, a crazy scenario. Um, there were other Americans involved this weekend in 
a couple of one versus two games in big European leagues. Tyler Adams played for Leipzig, which lost 1-0 to Bayern Munich at home. And probably, I think if you even listen to Julian Nagelsmann, uh, means he's basically conceded the title to to Bayern Mm -hmm. Munich in Germany. And then Tim Weah, Uh, ended up coming on and playing the majority of the game for Lille, winning 1-0 at PSG. Big win for Lille. Jonathan David with the game-winning goal. Neymar gets sent off toward the end of this game. It got kind of crazy toward the end. But, you know, bummer for, for Tyler Adams. Good stuff for Tim Weah. I just like the fact that you've got American national team players playing in these big games in Europe. Yeah, I mean, the only way it could be better is if there were fans in the stadium, because then you'd be saying he'd get big occasion reps. There's still big occasions. I imagine that they feel the pressure in the camp, but there's just that extra feeling of, all right, World Cup quarterfinal, massive stage. This is, you know, you can send the U.S. farther than they've been since 1930. Are you awed by the moment? And the reason why it's so important for players to move to Europe is so that they aren't awed by the moment when they get into these kinds of clubs. But if you had said, there are Americans playing at the top. I mean, when we were mentioning Pulisic replacements, I'd even say Tim Weah, right? Tim Weah, you know, can absolutely play a wing position in the in, in the U.S. setup. Um, but if I had said five years ago, hey, you're going to have a regular feature in the team second in the Bundesliga and top of Ligue 1, you'd be like, what? Like, have we completely changed the way we do soccer in this country? Like, th- those are things of massive significance. So the fact that Lille not only beat PSG in this match, but is holding off a title charge from PSG, who themselves, by the way, under Maurizio Pochettino, have not been tremendous in the league. They've lost four times since he's taken over. But the fact that Lille continue to be consistent performers and you feel that pressure like, wow, we can do it. We're Lille and we can do this. So... That's got to be something of huge significance for both of those players. Really good title race going on in France now. You've got Lille in first place, PSG not far behind, but Monaco has slipped ahead of Lyon. Lyon's still there within striking distance. It's a four-team race in a league that maybe doesn't get a ton of credit, but you know, at least at the top of that league, I look forward to those games. One, one quick question, though, about Wea. The back of his shirt says T. Wea. Hmm. There's no other Weas on Lille. <laughs> is is he doing this to separate from his dad? I I I I've never had the chance to ask him. Probably, yeah. Because like <laughs> I I believe there's a player, uh, I I think somewhere in the championship that has the last name Puskas, and there's only one Puskas you think of. So my guess is just like, oh wait, is that that can't be Puskas, right? So yeah, I would imagine that you know for. Uh, the uninitiated that maybe aren't watching Lille week in, week out. Like, well, it's not George Way, is it? So you put the T there, make sure that people uh, people know the distinction. That would have that would have to be the only reason. We got to get Tim Way on, on the pod here soon because yeah. uh, one of the best interviews in the U.S. men's is national he? team player pool. Yeah, I interviewed him a few years ago. He was with the national team against um, Colombia. He had a really good assist on a goal, even though the U.S. lost. And uh, after the game, one of the best post-game interviews of all time. Just, mm. he's he's fantastic. Um, let's talk Champions League, because this is Men's Champions League. A big week for quarterfinal uh, leg ones. Two of them on Tuesday, two of them on Wednesday. Just want to get your quick thoughts on, on each of these. Uh, Tuesday, we've got Man City Dortmund. 
city plan just they're on cruise control just killing everybody beat Leicester again over the weekend but Dortmund has suddenly become a team that after losing at home to Frankfurt over the weekend they're seven points out of fourth place Champions League qualifying for next season and at this point this is crazy it almost seems like the best chance for Dortmund to qualify for next year's Champions League is to win this Champions League and the the nuts part about it is I actually am not writing them off from doing that just because I feel like they might be capable if they can put something together that is better than what they've been doing in the Bundesliga. Which is what they've done in the competition so far. I mean, against Sevilla, that aggregate scoreline looks close, but it wasn't. It was not close at all. And then in the Champions League, they finished top of the group uh, with Lazio, Club Brugge, and Zenit. So they have been better in Europe than they have been in, in their domestic competition. And I mean, you know that that kind of looming threat of Haaland and Sancho going in the summer, if they don't make champions, I mean, you'd almost guarantee nailed on they're going to have to sell those players um, to not only make up for the financial windfall, but those players want to be in the Champions League. So like from a city perspective, there is a fear, right? That no matter how bad they've been in the league, as you mentioned, they, they lost 2-1 to Frankfurt in the match before the international break. They drew 2-2 with Cologne. So they have not, they're not in good form. They have not had a good season. But Ferling Halan, someone's a hat trick. You wouldn't be stunned. And so that is the ultimate fear is that no matter what you do to have kind of put yourself in good standing, they've lost one game basically since the turn of the year uh, in all competitions. They've put themselves in a great position to go on to the final, but one bad performance in the Champions League and that could be you done. So it, it's going to have to be City's absolute best, and they clearly were prepping for it with a fairly rotational squad against Leicester, even though they beat the team that's third in the Premier League relatively easily with that rotation squad. I will say this, that when Dortmund is not playing well, which is over the weekend again, they are really the all-body language, bad body language team of Europe because yeah. Holland's body language is he's so <laughs> upset at everybody, at his teammates, at his coach, at the situation. Um, and I, I have to say, I, I really like Gio Reyna. I think he's going to be a terrific player. And I don't want to make too much of body language because that kind of gets into an annoying thing of if you make too much of it all the time. But I will say, you can tell when Gio gets down on himself. And yep. and he, like, I, I want to say to him, man, you're good. You know, like, don't, you don't need to do this. You're good. Um, and, and so we'll see how that works out with Man City because I honestly think City might destroy Dortmund in this quarterfinal. I also think it's possible that Holland might just do something absolutely incredible. And I'm not writing him off. Especially in the Champions League. Basically, since he entered the... We, we're aware of his existence because of the Champions League and how good he was in the group stage for Arbery Salzburg. And then since he's moved to Dortmund, he's been brilliant in this competition. He is going to be the one that right now looks on pace to get near Cristiano Ronaldo's seemingly unattainable records in this competition, particularly when, you know, uh, the Champions League moves to the Swiss model. I kind of wonder if there's like a pre-Swiss model era, almost like goals per game or something, uh, so that Halan doesn't, you know, kind of accumulate his way towards that record. But he has been absolutely incredible in this competition. So I would not be surprised. He's also been a big stage player as well. Like he did really well in Der Klassiker. So I would be really surprised if he doesn't come up with several moments of magic in this tie and potentially knock City out. Well, and, and we also have the tradition now 
unlike any other uh, of once City hits the quarterfinals oh. or the semifinals of Pep Guardiola overthinking things. <laughs> so play a, a, only- <laughs> a three seven zero in this uh, upcoming game. It's going to be incredible. You've never seen a formation like it. Also on Tuesday, and I'm really bummed these games are happening at the same time, but that's UEFA for you. Uh, Real Madrid, Liverpool. Mm. And we're going to be missing Sergio Ramos in this one, which is is going to be an issue uh, for Real Madrid. And, you know, Liverpool's so hard to figure out because they looked really good in beating Arsenal over the weekend. The season has not gone well. Their Champions League performances have actually been quite good. And, and so I, I, I'm certainly not writing off Liverpool here. In fact... Having watched both Liverpool and Real Madrid lately, I kind of like Liverpool in this one. And there's one reason why, in my opinion. Diogo Jota. He has been (laughs) absolutely sensational. I completely agree with you. When you look at the record, so he went out in a game against Wolves, oddly enough, his former team. And since then, Liverpool has won five, drawn four, and lost six. So they completely cratered. And it was actually at that point that their season fell off, not after the Van Dyke injury. You remember mm-hmm. the, the Van Dyke injury happens against Everton. They won four of their next six games and drew the other two, including a 1-1 against Manchester City. So they played pretty well, even without Virgil Van Dyke for a time. But it was when Jota went out, and I think they really stopped scoring goals. And since he's come back, they've been really good. Scored three goals in the Premier League in his last two games. Was brilliant for Portugal. Yeah. And in Europe, they've been better than they have been domestically. So... In my view, I think Liverpool will come into this probably feeling as good as they could have given how bad the run their how bad their run was through January and February. So I'm I'm backing them to, to go through in this tie, which is incredible when you consider kind of how much of outsiders you were to even make the Champions League in the Premier League. But I think they're gonna do Real Madrid here. Which is interesting because Real Madrid just keeps getting closer in La Liga. Yeah. And uh they're now three back. Uh, with Atletico Madrid's loss on Sunday. Big week for Real Madrid. They've got Liverpool in Champions League, El Clasico against Barcelona on the weekend, and then leg two a couple days later against Liverpool. So three games that are going to have a real impact on, on how Real Madrid is sort of judged, I think, this season. And you know, they could still win La Liga. And honestly, if they beat Barcelona, I think people are going to be feeling pretty good about their chances just because Atleti seems to be imploding. Um, So this could get really interesting over a three-game stretch. And, you know, if they get... If they lose all three games, then you got people asking, probably demanding Zidane's head again. So um, (laughs) It's so funny with Zidane, how quickly that happens. I would actually back them... (laughs) to beat Barcelona in the league more than I would back them to beat Liverpool in the Champions League. Yep. And I know that they're the ultimate European club. I know, I mean, Sergio Ramos is kind of a huge part of that identity, but um, I, I think Liverpool is more likely to, to beat them than Barcelona is, which is, you know, kind of amazing. Wednesday, we've got Bayern Munich, PSG, and I don't know what more to say about Bayern Munich right now, except to ask the question, what would it take to actually hurt them? Because and cause their performances to suffer. Because Lewandowski's out. He's hurt. He's not going to be involved in, in any of the PSG games here. 
He was also gone for this huge game away to Liverpool or to Leipzig over the weekend that Bayern wasn't amazing, but you know, they they won the game. Very sort of Bayern clinical, did what they needed to do. And Chopomoting is, is is a bit of a drop off from Lewandowski <laughs> to say. For the me, least. Eric Maxim Chupamoting <laughs> is the Forrest Gump of football. I mean, there is not a person who's probably experienced more by compu- pure happenstance than <sighs> Eric Maxim Chupamoting. <laughs> so it didn't seem to affect him, and and so like, you know, PSG Neymar's back. Um, I almost wonder if Mbappe does more when, when Neymar is not there, to be honest, because that's what I've noticed over time, it seems like. But you know, PSG, bad loss at home over the weekend in the league, rematch of the final that Bayern won last season. And I feel like I should, I feel like PSG should have a better chance in this than I actually feel like they do. I feel like I, I I disagree with you. I think they do have a better really? chance. I I do think Ooh. that the Lewandowski I do think that the Lewandowski thing is a big deal. Like that's their clinical finisher, and they've got plenty of other players that can score goals. But you kind of wonder the whole kind of di- attacking structure is orbited around Robert Lewandowski. I imagine opposing defenses kind of build their systems around Robert Lewandowski and trying to slow him down. Eric Maxim Chupamoting is of no threat, and I, I just don't think like my feeling with Leipzig is. They're a really good team against every other team that's either at their level or below. But when it comes times when it comes time to rise a level, they just don't have it. So I'm not gonna say that Bayern are fine heading into this tie because they played well against Leipzig or because they won the game against Leipzig. So my feeling is that it is gonna be a big drop off and that PSG, I think, have a better chance. I don't I'm not saying that they're gonna win it, but what I am saying is that they've got a better chance than I would have thought going into it. I'd probably make it 50-50 right now, which I would not have said given how good Bayern have been in Europe up until it. Yeah, I mean, for starters here, I think Thomas Mueller is going to show during this period when they don't have Lewandowski even more how valuable he is. He created the goal the other day for for Goretzka. Just doing... Thomas Mueller things. It, it's yeah. insane to me that Thomas Mueller does not still play for the German national team. It, it, it actually really deeply bothers me because he's not that <laughs> old and he could bring so much to that team still, but it allows him to focus on Bayern and, yeah. and he still brings it every single week. I still feel like no team in Europe feels as inevitable as Bayern Munich. Yes. And there's something in the culture of that team, because even against, and and I understand your point about Leipzig. I think they have been disappointing in big games most of the time, but Alfonso Davies wasn't available against Leipzig either. It just, and and they just, it didn't matter. And and it certainly, it helps when you have the, the personnel that they do, but they're not the richest team in Europe by any means, Bayern. There's something about the culture in the team. And I just, that's for me what makes this not 50-50. I, I, I just feel, I don't know if Bayern's inevitable in this one because PSG deserves a lot of respect, but I do yeah. think 60-70 Bayern. That's just whenever, whenever the next time Bayern Munich gets eliminated from the Champions League or they don't win the Bundesliga, I will be surprised. I will be legitimately stunned and it will take 
an act of slaying the dragon, right? Beating the final boss. It will not be, well, Bayern fell off and they just waltzed their, and some other team waltzed their way to success. I don't think that's going to work. And you certainly make a good point in terms of the squad, right? If you kind of go from Neymar and Mbappe back, right? Bayern have a much better team. So I guess that, you know, if if there is going to be a deciding factor, but look, that, that forward line can get chance against Bayern if they insist on playing high, which you imagine they will. And maybe their finishing will be better on the day than it was in the Champions League final when PSG spurned chances to win the big year's trophy. Finally, we've got Porto Chelsea. My, my tweet the other day after the Chelsea's 5-2 loss at home to West Brom was, Belichick voice, we're on to Porto. <laughs> um, both of these games are going to be played in Sevilla, which I think is interesting. Um, but on paper... Chelsea should feel like they got a great draw here. Now, yes. Porto eliminated Juventus. Porto's a good team, okay? I, I, I certainly don't want to disrespect them. But based on how Chelsea has played under Tuchel, except for this past weekend, you you would have to feel like defensively Tuchel's Chelsea is quite good, as they showed against Atletico Madrid. It's just so annoying because I had my thoughts ready to go heading into this Champions League tie, and one performance through it. Like, once you concede five goals to West Brom, doesn't everything get thrown out the window? I mean, I know it was a red card, but, like, you know, the lack of sharpness in the performance from Jorginho was a worry. I thought he was right. poor in the game against West Brom. And Golo Conte's dealing with a hamstring injury. He probably won't be fit for this one. And I'd really like for N'Golo Conte to be involved in these big ties. Um, and... Timo Werner comes off a pretty bad performance with Germany and, you know, passes up an opportunity rather than trying to take it. What's his level of confidence heading into this one? Who's playing it? Like, all of a sudden, you know, from Chelsea looking stable and strong, one performance has kind of thrown that whole thing off in the international break as well. So, like you said, Porto, I think this is going to sound weird. I think this tie is more going to be a referendum on Juventus than it is going to be on either of these two teams, right? <laughs> because if Porto get hammered out of the competition by Chelsea, then it's like, whew, Juve, much worse than we thought. Because you look at Porto's record in the Champions League, they basically got the best out of the, 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 the rest of that group, which wasn't very strong. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, Olympiacos and Marseille who had a really bad run in the competition, and then beating Juventus to get here. Manchester City finished top of the group and were clearly the class. And you look at their domestic league, they're seven points off of Sporting, and Sporting have a game in hand. So right. it's, not like, it's not like they're lighting up their domestic league. So I, I do think that if you're trying to assess the level of where Porto is, you're using the Juve tie as a reference, and... I'm not sure that that really carries a lot of significance given how bad Juve were in the tie and have been this season. I was thinking about Juve and Dortmund over the weekend and how Dortmund very likely not to finish in the top four in Germany. Juve now barely hanging on to fourth place in Serie A. And I don't know if they're going to qualify for Champions League next year. And... That's a huge, huge drop-off from what Juve has done over the last decade. Yeah, I mean, Juve, Juve has to be... If I were them, I think I'd send a you-up text to Massimiliano Allegri. <laughs> be like, hey, we need each other right now. Ten games, can you do a job? Can you get us in the Champions League? Because you know they would, right? If Allegri came in, they get to the Champions League, no problem. But with Pirlo, like, what's going to arrest this slot that they're on? They yeah. just... They're bad. 
And look, we haven't talked about a pretty bad incident with Weston McKinney uh, getting yep. involved with a, with a big party uh, that I guess drew some police attention that, and, and, a, and a, I guess you can call it a suspension from the UVA as well. But they're in trouble. Because Napoli are on form. They've won four straight matches. And Juve, you would think, oh, they, you know, like you talk about Bayern being inevitable. In Italy, Bayern or Juve are inevitable. And they're not. And I think yeah. you kind of got to bring someone in who can at least instill that for 10 matches until you figure out what to do next. Nah, it's not going well there right now at all. Uh, I want to talk about one other thing here that happened on Sunday and yet another incident of racism in European soccer. This one in Spain in a game between Cadiz and Valencia. Uh, Cadiz's Juan Cala racially insulted, allegedly, but I, I, I believe Mukhtar Diakabi. Uh, uh, the player for Valencia, who said he was racially abused in this game. Valencia leaves the field, but then returns as Diacabi leaves the game himself at that point. Somehow, Kala stays in the game for a while. He ends up coming off after halftime. And afterward, Valencia players say they were told that they had to come back or face a points deduction and it just leaves you with a really awful taste of how these racist incidents not just continue to happen but the response is they're getting it so wrong you know it's encouraging to see the Valencia players leave the field but then they come back and like We'll learn more about the facts in this incident and and who said what, not just on the field, but to get Valencia to come back on. But there has to be support for, for entire teams to leave the field and no threats of points deductions if a team doesn't come back on the field. You know, and, and, and to me, I'm, I'm just left here feeling like, once again, they've gotten this wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the authority figures have a lot of improving to do in terms of how they handle this. It doesn't seem as though, for the most part, match officials, league officials are, are sensitive enough to the wishes of the players and to ultimately what has happened there. So that's a big one. We were talking before the pod about generally what comes from these incidents, right? So obviously the discussion about how big of a problem racism is in the culture and in football is among them. But I just kind of wonder, right? So there is this desire for this big sweeping gesture of the players walking off and it carries this huge significance and hearts and minds are changed as a result. And maybe the supporters of the two clubs involved in this game all, you know, all of a sudden, you know, have, you know, it's it's confronted with them and the fans of Cadiz and the fans of Valencia all of a sudden start thinking about things in a certain way. But we had a fairly huge incident earlier this year where Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul here had an incident of racism where a referee said something towards an Istanbul Basakshir player. Both sets of players walked off. They couldn't find another official to replace the official who'd said it. And so they didn't play the game until the next day. If you had said to me 10 years ago, there will be an incident which a referee says something racist towards a player, both player, both sets of players walk off, and they don't finish the game. I would have been like, well, that's shock and awe. That's exactly the kind of shock and awe that protests right. are meant to create. And yet, 
a few days later, I'm not sure it was still as much in the conscience. Are we having the kinds of conversations about uh, racism within football? I mean, in England, it's happening a lot, particularly with social media abuse, but I'm, I'm not sure it's kind of the, the dominant uh, conversation that you would think an incident like that would generate. Such famous players on the Champions League stage. So I, I just kind of wonder what the best way in terms of actually creating change is to handle these incidents and what are we meant to get out of them and ultimately try and fix this giant problem. It's a giant problem that goes far beyond the sport, but I, I just don't know kind of what we're meant to feel and what the players are meant to feel as that's happening. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, yeah, specific incidents happen. How do you respond to those incidents? And then separately you have, how do we try and work on addressing the big picture problem, right? Mm-hmm. And at the very least, when the specific incidents happen, I feel like the response needs to be a good one. I felt like the one you talked about with PSG and, and Istanbul Basaksa here, that I felt much better about that response from those two teams than I felt about the one in Spain today with Cadiz and Valencia. Mm-hmm. And I felt badly that Valencia like even their club Twitter account like cited the the racially abused player as wanting his team to come back on which afterward we found out is not the entire story by any means you know authorities were saying you as a team have to come back on mm-hmm. i don't like that they put valencia put their own player out publicly saying that i just don't yeah. and and so just a, a really poor response. Mm-hmm. Entire team should walk off. Hell, both teams should walk off. Uh, you know, and, and we we didn't see that fully today, mm-hmm. and, and it still bothers me. But like, I yeah. also know in, in the big picture, we're not like we're not solving racism next week. So yeah. whether it's in soccer or outside mm-hmm. of soccer, but I still think the sport of soccer can do so much more than it's doing yeah, and and have, an, have something of an influence. Well, appreciate the discussion this week. As always, Chris, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system. You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligon, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Courtney Stith and Andre Carlisle. 
Our guests today are the hosts of a terrific new podcast called Diaspora United, which centers black women in domestic and global soccer. Courtney Stith can be found on Twitter at Courtney Stith, S-T-I-T-H. And Andre Carlisle is at not underscore Carlisle. Their podcast is also on Twitter at Diaspora UTD Pod. Courtney and Andre, congrats on the podcast, and thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. This was this was random. We were like, are you us, really? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, really, I, I appreciate it so much. This has been such a fun, wild ride already, and um, yeah, we're really excited. I, I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've been listening to your podcast since it came out not too long ago. Got several episodes under your belt now. Um, there is a big week ahead in women's soccer, which I definitely want to get your thoughts on. But first, I just wanted to ask about the origin story of your podcast. How did you two meet in the first place? What are the the other things that you do for your work? And, and how did your podcast come about? Yeah, that's a good story. I, I, I usually tell the story. I want to see if uh, Courtney wants to tell the story from her perspective, since I usually jump in because I get excited about these things. Yeah, so the backstory to all of this is I had a conversation with uh, actually one of your other podcast guests, Bria. Um, I just messaged her. We talked a little bit about soccer. She like gave me some tips about covering and then like nothing happened because I also work as a video producer. And so like my work life got really busy. So I was like, okay, and just kind of forgot about it. Um, I had been following Andre on Twitter for a while. And then all of a sudden one day I got a follow back and I was like, ooh, this is interesting. I mean, I wasn't expecting it. I was just like, oh, cool. And then like, I looked and actually at this time I was like, I think it was January and I was like, I'm not going to go on social media a lot. Like instead of dry January, I'm like, I'm not going on social media. Uh, and then he messaged me saying, do you want to start a podcast about black women in soccer? And I was like, yes. Like <laughs> didn't even think like, how do I put a podcast together? What gear to, what gear do I need? Any of this stuff? I was like, yes, I would love to start a podcast about black women in soccer. And, that, and had you ever sp- communicated with each other before that question came? No. Only via Twitter, I believe. Like, you know, like either maybe like a, an ad or two or maybe like liking a tweet. Like, that's really it. Um, so it, it was interesting how, how like, these things just kind of happen. It's like, you know, the right people find the right people when, it, when they need to. And, you know, it was just, it was so random that I was like, I, I, this is a thought I had in my head. Like, I feel like, this is a space that exists. It needs to be filled. I was having a hard, a lot of internal struggle on whether I was the person to fill it, and I wanted to make I wanted to make sure I had somebody who was a partner who really felt like you know they brought a lot to that area to help like make up where I felt like I was deficient. You know, being being a black woman, I am not, <laughs> but I have a lot of you know understanding, sympathy, and empathy, and awareness, and so. I was like, I know this is something that, that would be so needed and so valued, but I know I can't do it by myself, obviously. That would be silly. Uh, so I need to make sure I have the right partner. So message Courtney, and she, <laughs> she, exactly as she said, she was immediately in. And I was like, thank you. That was a lot easier than I was hoping, than I was expecting. So let's get started. And you guys have jumped right in, you know? I mean, you've had good interview guests, you've had really interesting analysis, you've done research of things that are happening in women's soccer. Um, Before we get into some details on that, just sort of like, what are your backgrounds in the sport? (laughs) Well, I can tell you mine. I I have one of the, uh, 
I think kind of a sad entry into um, into soccer being an American is because soccer never really felt for me growing up. Um, even though I did grow up like in the suburbs, they were the type of suburbs that, you know, kind of identifies your blackness as what they think it is. And so I was always pushed into basketball or football. That was it. And that's a, a lot of that is just that's American life. But, you know, soccer was a big part. It was just not for me. <laughs> And so that's what was so interesting is that, you know, I think I play, I played soccer when I was probably like four, somewhere in the ages of like four or six. I was on a team called the Ninjas. I have a very sad photo that's hilarious. And we lost every game. And so like from then, my interest in soccer was just like, oh, that's not for me. That's not my thing. Fast forward to me being like mid-20s and realizing now that I can finally watch it on like some fuzzy like, direct TV business, I was like, okay. This sport is very different than what I've been told or what I know about. I think I love it. I'm going to keep watching it. Then I met who I now affectionately call my dad, <laughs> Didier Drogba, uh, and I became hooked. And then I just started watching a ton of soccer. Like, people always got to laugh, like, how do you watch that much soccer? I'm like, shut up. Leave me alone. I'm watching soccer. Um, but then I just started, you know, trying to write about it on my own blogs and get interested in it. You know, kind of created a little community of people who, you know, try to join a community of people online who also write about soccer and follow it. That's really how it all happened for me. And, you know, I've met some really cool people, some really awesome people. Courtney's obviously one. Uh, and it's just been like, that's kind of how it took off for me. And I have regrets. I wish I would have known I love this sport as much as I do or, or would, you know, decades before I did. But happens. You're here now. How about you, Courtney? Yeah, so for me, it's almost kind of the opposite. I grew up playing soccer. I have two older siblings. Um, both of them played college soccer. My older sister played at UVA. My older brother played at Syracuse. So, And I grew up in the suburbs, so we just, like, I think my older sister probably started playing in the fourth grade. Um, and when she started playing, the rest of us all started playing. Um, and honestly, from there, like, I've always loved soccer. I wasn't the be I wasn't as skilled as my siblings, I would say. Um, but I mean, I still always love the games um, and like being able to, I mean, like where I'm from, we kind of live close to uh, Red Bull Arena in Newark. And I remember like going to a few like Metro Stars games, like yeah. when I was like very, very little, they weren't around for a lot longer when I was like, uh, when I was going to those games. But yeah, I've always grown up playing soccer, watching. And then as soon as I graduated from college, I was like, I don't know what I like. The only thing that I genuinely like besides Didier Drogba because he also <laughs> brought me into Chelsea like brought me to Chelsea Football Club fandom of like honestly being at like bad temp jobs and dirt and I would like purposely schedule my lunch breaks around Champions League matches mm -hmm. um and so around this time like it was when Liverpool versus Man City the I feel like one of the first iterations of it um and that you know title winning season where Man City won by one point and I like um fully got immersed and just honestly started watching way too much soccer like I grew up watching you know you sometimes watch a game and stuff like that but this was when I was really starting to watch games multiple times a week like Saturdays and Sundays was like how much soccer can I fit in um, and then on the flip side of that anytime it was you know World Cup time or um, even Olympics time I was watching the women's national team on the side interesting um, some of the guests you've had as interview guests are Angela Hukley's uh, Bria Felician, you mentioned earlier, who was on my podcast not too long ago, uh, and Jasmine Spencer. You've had some others as well. 
You guys cover the European game and the U.S. game. With it being so much easier now to watch European club women's soccer on TV here over the past year, do you think we're entering a new phase of the growth of the women's game? I would say yes, for the most part. We're definitely seeing a lot more investment. Like I know out of the WSL, they basically got a brand new, like a huge three-year TV deal. But I also think while the game is growing, we are starting to see, you know, like, little bits of inequities of who's really supporting women's soccer um you know out of the wsl out of for example leon and psg are really like are great clubs but they're also supported really really well financially and on the flip side you can definitely see even if you just look at league tables how why the gap is growing even though there is an overall support and we do love to see that it's still for example even just watching it's like almost impossible to watch the leagues out of Spain, Italy, like you have to either make 17 different, you know, accounts like getting Barca TV or something like that if you want to see Barcelona um, or just trying to find a way to watch it here, either using streams or something like that. Is that your sense too, Andre? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that, you know, obviously here in the States, the NWSL has been huge. You know, there have been a lot of leagues that have, that have you know, tried and, and, and failed for for other reasons, not necessarily or not at all because of the product on the pitch, just the investment, um, being able to get the opportunities and the promotion that you would expect. The NWSL has been able to grow from that, you know, and we had actually had a really great conversation with Angela Hucles about that because she played in a lot of the, I think every single one of the the previous uh, women's leagues that, you know, preceded the NWSL. And so it's great to see, you know, the NWSL growing, but you know, like like Courtney said, sometimes it's still about accessibility. It's still about promotion. You know, it is. They there have been massive steps, but it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like some of the stuff. It's 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 weird when there's when there's progress. You want to be you want to celebrate it, but you also want to be like that's not like this should be the norm. So we don't want to like pat people on the back for just doing the bare minimum or the norm. Because like we see the product, we know it's good. We know the players deserve a platform much larger than what they have. And so while it's like, yeah, it's growing, it's also like, okay, what next? How do you guys go about choosing your interview guests? (laughs) We are so organized, you have no idea. Um, (laughs) It really becomes uh, up to like contacts and just taking risks really like we 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 kind of identify people that we really want to talk to and think can we make this happen somehow let's see you know we we kind of strategize between one another and be like okay how can we how can we do this and uh i think angela hucles actually tells a fun a funny story on the pod about how like you know she said she was uh hesitant to, to like reach out to us and we were like thank you for making us look a lot cooler than we are actually i think that was on twitter uh because we when she followed the pod account we were like, okay, should we DM her right now or should we wait a couple of days? And we were like, nah, let's wait a couple of days. <laughs> and then Meg, Meg Linehan was actually like, uh, I'm going to get you guys in touch. So there you go. And so that came together via Meg. Uh, some of the others have just been random, you know, talking to Maggie Tim. You know, she's an agent. She got us in contact with Jasmine Spencer. So, you know, just a, a number of ways. I used to cover the spirit, you know, had, had um, conversations with Kaya McCullough. She was our first interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, and our first episode and woof, that, that episode, I, I, I hate to plug the podcast cause that's what we're here to do, but honestly go listen to that first episode. Cause I think that was like 
that episode is a lot of the reason why we exist. Yeah. Okay. Um, you had a, a really interesting segment on a recent pod where Courtney did the research on how many black players there are in the top five women's leagues around the world in the U.S., England, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. What were some of the things that stood out the most to you about that research and what you learned? Yeah, so I would say from that, and I will say that was like a something that I thought was going to be relatively simple and really was not just seeing how many, for example, even like huge established clubs with women's teams, like on their websites, no photos anywhere, like having to do deep internet research being like, who is this? Or even just me trying to figure out Swedish. Don't like, <laughs> like, and also, and the interesting thing too is for a lot of these clubs, um, a lot of them are, you know, have really big men's teams. And so you expect like, oh, well, they translate their websites to English for the men's teams. Like, obviously, if I'm translating a website, we're going to translate all of it. No. Uh, so having to navigate that. And now I, you know, know a few random sporadic words in German and Swedish um, and Dutch a little bit. Uh, but I was honestly, I was surprised at two things. One, how much farther France along was than the other countries. Um, I remember looking at that, and there wasn't a single French team in the first league that didn't have a black player. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the team that had the least amount still had four black players. And how much more integrated you could see, like there were black coaches, black um, backroom staff, and you could definitely, and it was like kind of refreshing to see because that's not something you see, especially in the women's game. Um, but also it wasn't that surprising to me to see even huge, you know, storied clubs, not having black players, not having black coaches, any black, any black backroom staff, um, just given, you know, if you like thinking about how soccer is even here in the States and it's, you know, really, really white for the most part, it's not surprising to me that for a lot of these leagues that a, like in the countries that they were um, that they're in didn't allow women's soccer until really the 70s for a good mm-hmm. amount of them and B that a lot of them weren't like a lot of them became professionalized relatively recently like the WSL for example didn't actually become professionalized till around 2017 it's not surprising to me that the that these clubs in the faces of world football are white yeah I mean I was surprised to hear even <clears throat> though Arsenal women have had black players in the past they don't have a single one right now yeah that it's that kind of stuff that is very interesting how a big club and i think one of the biggest takeaways for me because i you know i kind i expected this i knew the numbers weren't going to look good for anybody outside of france um but it's it's what and courtney made this point on the podcast like you look at arsenal men's first team quite quite diverse they 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 do a lot of recruiting they do a lot of bringing players in from other countries from other areas you know bring in you know black players you know hispanic players all kind of players they 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 got a lot going on on that side but on the women's side they don't and so to me it's just really about you know in the next step for you know women's soccer is are you doing that scouting are you doing that research are you doing that recruitment to make sure you're bringing the you you have the widest player pool available or where you're pulling from. And I think in a club like Arsenal, you kind of see, you know, they they have the resources to do it and have it. And I don't want to pick on Arsenal because honestly, the WSL overall is very white. Uh, even our, our club, we're, we're both Chelsea supporters having a rough day today. 
But uh, <laughs> but we're both, we're both Chelsea supporters, and you Real know we, we've got two players, Drew Spence and Jess Carter, and neither one of them are starters. You know they're 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 backup players, and you know you just you do hope that with the investment that the WSL is getting, that that actually makes the clubs do a lot better in this regard. You know broaden their player pool and make sure that not only are they bringing in players because they're talented, <laughs> because there's a lot of talent out there that they may be missing, and can benefit the club, but they also take that time to do a lot of internal work to make sure that when they bring these players in, the environments are safe. And so it's a holistic issue (laughs) and another reason why we exist. (laughs) Yeah. And I think going back off that, for example, when we're thinking about potentially either scouting, like knowing that, for example, if it's not accessible for us to even watch the games, like I bet it's, you know, probably even harder for scouts to go out and watch and thinking, well, when are we really seeing the most black players? It's, you know, around World Cup time, maybe Olympic time. and th- But that's like, you know, once every four years. Um, and maybe if you, you know, maybe if these other federations do have U17, U21 teams, and maybe they can get into some youth World Cups. But if you're really only thinking about recruiting black players and bringing them in once every four years, then obviously you're going to have a cycle where you have two black players and then all of a sudden you go two or three years with none. You mentioned this earlier, soccer in the U.S. has for so long been a predominantly white sport, including in the women's game. Uh, I did a little research here. So in 2018, I don't know if there are newer numbers than this, but only 5.3% of women's collegiate players were black. Um, But we're seeing more black players than ever on the U.S. national team. And there were more black players than ever taken in the NWSL draft this year. Do you see this trend continuing? God, I hope not. <laughs> in terms of like the whiteness of it, you know, being being so, you know, only 5% in collegiate sports, that's insane. And and I think that's that goes back to what we were talking about like with the WSL, like where are you pulling from? Where are you where are you, you know, where are you recruiting from? What are you paying attention to? Where are your where are your pipelines and who's not included in those and why? Um, that why question is is probably the most important one. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot, you know, we loved the, we, 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 did, we went crazy after the, after the NWSL draft because we did not expect that. Um, really? we knew, right. <laughs> we knew the, uh, we knew that there were a lot of players <clears throat> who deserved it and who could be drafted, but seeing them recognized, especially with such high picks was so great. And we definitely do hope that that part of it continues. Because... Yeah, that was that was the question I was kind of looking okay. at there. Was I, I I certainly hope the trend does not continue that only five percent of college players are. Black. Yeah, well, you know, you just it it's tough because you know I I and I'm my bad. You know, I interpreted that as like, do you see the the continued like five percent thing? And this is America, so until I see change, yeah, I expect what what the status quo to remain the status quo. But you know, hopefully. Given what we saw in the draft, this lets people know a whole lot of talent out there that you, you know, probably want to look at. Right. And one thing, and sorry to cut you off, but also one thing that I'm thinking about is I know so many like players, especially right now, always talk about like the 99ers and like inspiring a whole generation of, you know, new, uh, new female soccer players. And, but also like there was only one black player on that team. So I'm hoping that with the continued success and seeing people like Crystal Dunn, obviously I had to give her a shout out, Christian Press, even in the future for Kat as well, that they will, knowing that this sport, like that black players can play the sport and also be incredibly successful at it, will inspire a new generation of 
of black players coming up saying like, oh, I can do this. I can reach the top level. I can, you know, go play abroad if I want to um, and win World Cups and all of those things. Another thing I, I saw was in 2018, there were only three black female head coaches in NCAA Division One. There's only one female coach right now in the NWSL, and NWSL has never had a black head coach of either gender. Um, I know that's the case in France. They have black coaches in the women's league there. Uh, I think in the NWSL, from what I could tell, only Brianna Scurry and Nikki Washington have been assistant coaches in the NWSL. Um, how does that change? I think part of it, honestly, is creating a pipeline and putting financial resources behind it. I, like knowing, so I was on another podcast talking about Hope Powell because she's um, the only black female coach in the WSL. And she, when she was talking about her journey into coaching, it was something that she luckily knew very early on when she was playing, like she wanted to be a coach. But knowing, for example, the pricing of UEFA licenses, like that, there's a huge financial barrier to that. But then there's also the flip side of that barrier of thinking about, for example, the way that we talk about black players, and hopefully that's going to change. But, you know, if you only think about someone athletically and, you know, talking about like brute force strength, all that stuff, if you're not describing them in ways that we do kind of, you know, if we think about huge coaches thinking about like, you know, tactical masterclasses and all those things. And if you are putting black people and black players into stereotypes of just being athletic, then it's not surprising to me that if there are black coaches, which there are, like, it's not saying that, you know, that there aren't people out there, but also what resources are they given? Are they actually being elevated to a position where they can't succeed? Um, there is a lot going on in women's soccer over the next couple of weeks. We've got the U.S. women's national team, which is on this incredible 37-game unbeaten streak, playing at Sweden this Saturday and at France three days later. What do you think the chances are of that U.S. unbeaten run coming to an end? Well, um, before apparently... COVID situation got really out of control in France again. Uh, I believe they're in a, in a fourth wave. And I think I just saw a report of four more in Lyon's camp, uh, positive tests. I think that total number is 14 among players and staff. And we already got word on our side that Katarina Macario is not going to be joining the U.S. team. So, and we already know there's a number of players, you know, Wendy Renard, uh, I think a couple other, you know, France national team players. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more. Um, I would say that France game was the one. That was really going to be the one to really test them. Um, it's three days after the Sweden game. Uh, France certainly, <laughs> I'm sure, wants a lot of revenge for what happened. Um, I, that was the one that I thought was really going to And it still might be a great game. I mean, I'm still going to be super excited for it no matter what. But that was the one where I think we said, you know, given all the diaspora that we expected to see on the field, it was going to be a little conflicting. <laughs> We just need to figure out who we really, really want to see do well in this game. But uh, that was really the one, and it's been marred a little bit. But I still expect it to be very competitive, and it, and it still could. You know, it still could be the one that gets the U.S. Women's National Team their, their first, you know, not positive result. I was going to say they draw, loss, something like that. But now I kind of, with the players out, I'm kind of leaning towards the U.S. being able to take care of them. It's interesting because the last time the U.S. lost was to France uh, in, in a friendly. Yeah. So uh, you could 
potentially see that, but it is a bit of a bummer that not everyone's going to be involved in these games. It's just the nature of uh, trying to play during a pandemic. Maybe it'll just, maybe we should just be thankful that the games are even happening. Um, you know, fingers crossed that they do. Um, yeah. Courtney, what are you most looking forward to seeing in these two U.S. games coming up? Yeah, I'm really excited to see. I mean, I've I'm fascinated by Vlaco, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I feel like when we're on one level, like, he's just at a higher level above, like, thinking about things that we're not even thinking about, like, that beam of his notebook and, like, him playing 4D chess in his brain. Like, I feel like sometimes it's accurate. Um, So I am excited. I mean, I was really, really excited for that France game. I think it's still going to be a good match, but definitely with, um, like, with Lyon having so many players out um, and, you know, in various levels of quarantine it's definitely going to be different um but i still think the games are going to be good i'm interested to see seeing sweden because we do have you know a good amount of history there too with the olympics world cups things like that and even though um it was like easily um handled last time i and also for example knowing that for most of the u.s best based players you're in preseason you know you haven't really had a lot of game time match fitness compared to these two other teams where most of their players are European based and are completely match fit. And it could easily be that like, you know, our high press system has to change a little bit or something like that. So I'm interested, I think I'm most interested to see the little tweaks that Vlaco might make to really count for our competition and knowing, for example, that their fitness levels are completely different for the most part than ours. I know you both saw the video of Midge Purse and Megan Rapino at the White House with President Biden and the First Lady on Equal Pay Day. You know, Rapino's a known, a, very much a known quantity globally, but how much do you think that raised Midge Purse's profile? You know, and, and I, I find her fascinating. Like, I know she's like been voted to like the Harvard board uh, not too long ago, obviously on the field. She's been terrific uh, for club and country. Like, you know, how much do you think that moment, though, in the White House, like in the Oval Office, putting out videos and and doing all that stuff, how much do you think that raised her profile? Because she certainly seems to be on this skyrocketing path. Yeah, well, the interesting thing was, and I was thinking about the coverage of it, every like every coverage of that event was Meg Rampino than Midge Purse. Like if you clicked on any article, it was like maybe Midge was in the background. Um, and we did have, you know, that fun viral video of her tr- taking a photo that was actually a video, um, which pr- it, like just made me laugh because I was like, oh, the olds. Um, but while I think it's helpful, I also think we need to think about, for example, the way that we we're telling these stories, because for so many of them, it was like Meg Rapino does this, Meg Rapino goes to the White House. And it was, there was never actually like, you didn't actually see that much of a mention of Mitch Purse. And while, I mean, I particularly was super happy for her to be there, I I think it did raise her profile, but not maybe by as much as we thought because so much of the coverage was like, Megan Rapino does this, Megan Rapino does that. Like even, you know, I, I work, also work for um, a female sports newsletter and it was like, our thing about that was Megan Rapino. We didn't even, you know, mention Mitch Purse. So, and I think, for example, a lot of other media companies knowing that Megan Rapino gets clicks she's you know very well-known person that they really centered the coverage around her as opposed to centering the coverage around both of them it's interesting though because the best social video i was seeing was from midge's accounts (laughs) from not from anybody else's except maybe the white houses 
And you know, that's, that is kind of the way it goes, right? <laughs> you know, even especially in these kind of conversations, they're more palatable to a broader range of, of Americans when it's a white woman speaking. And, you know, I really give Megan Rapinoe a lot of respect because she has understood that. And she has spoken up a lot of times when she, you know, has, she basically made herself a target in a lot of ways. You know, in, in 2016, she was the first one to kneel, you know, after Colin Kaepernick did. And I remember some years after that, Crystal Dunn said that she wanted so badly to kneel beside, you know, uh, Megan Rapinoe. She wanted to make sure that, you know, her protest, she wanted to protest as well. But she knew that if she did, it might be the end of her with the U.S. Women's National Team. She knew that Megan Rapinoe had the platform to survive it. She didn't simply because she's a black woman. And, you know, that hurts. That hurts. You know, that's that's difficult. And I know that, you know, Crystal Dunn, you know, having to deal with that and, and being as good as we know she is, like, that's absurd. If, if there's, like, this team can go without a few players because it's really, really stacked in a lot of areas. Crystal Dunn's got to be that left backer. It ain't working, right? So, like... It's frustrating to see, but I, I see it kind of on two levels. Like, thank you, Megan Rapino, but also for, like for the rest of us, we got to get better at this. Like, we have to make sure that we're elevating the right players, the right voices, and you know, obviously the ones talking. You know, Mitch Purse did a whole lot of talking and a whole lot of important talking, and that should really be the headline um, because she said a lot of amazing things. It's brilliant, brilliant person. Like, we want to interview her, but also I would be terrified. <laughs> I'd be like, how about you just talk and say cool things? And I'm just going to be like, whoop, she right, y'all. She's <laughs> going to got. She's honestly, I would not put a password to secretly run the world one day. Like, mm-hmm. I, like it's not surprising to me at all. Like, I mean, there were like a lot of jokes on Wilson Twitter about like Mitch for president. But I was yep. like, honestly, one day she might be. Yeah, I was going to say like, yes, it, it's a joke, but also like, I'll buy that bumper sticker right now. <laughs> So I want to ask you a question about something that did come up on your podcast while we're talking about the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, A lot of people were surprised when the entire Women's National Team stood for the National Anthem during the She Believes Cup after having several players kneel for quite a while, ever since last summer and and before. Um, I had Crystal Dunn on my podcast. She said that they weren't going to kneel forever and had started the action phase of their protest. I guess that meaning that they she they felt like they didn't need to continue kneeling. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I think two things. One, I think for a lot of people, they saw kneeling in a vacuum. Like that was the only action they were going to do, which is probably like a little bit short-sighted of like thinking like, oh, yes, we're going to kneel and we're going to solve racism in this country. Like, obviously, that's not going to happen. Um, I, th- I know for myself and probably Andre as well, we were really surprised at it and seeing whenever they, you know, do those sweeping pans of the players while um, the anthem is going, I particularly saw that a few of the players looked uncomfortable and seemed quite unhappy. And so I think for us, we approached it as like, okay, well, what does this all mean? Like, there was no... And I think we would have thought about it differently, for example, if there was a statement beforehand or something like that saying, like, we are going to, you know, stand together as a team. Um, but I do think, and this is, you know, completely my opinion of, it was. it's kind of saddening that we saw all the players stand together before we saw all the players kneel together. And even that there are other federations, like Canada, for example, where all of their players kneeled for their 
entire national anthem and it was you know not necessarily a problem um but instead for this team it was like kind of a disjointed approach and i think that complete change was really surprising for a lot of people was it surprising for you too andre yeah, I was I was disappointed by it, not by the players standing, just disappointed in that like like uh Courtney just said they could never show that unified front under this given given what we all experienced in this world, the summer of of protests that we had actually more than summer. I mean, we had multiple seasons of protests. Um Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, so many others, you know, there's so many videos, so many like people who even during the Challenge Cup, everybody's talking about all the conversations the teams are having. And that's one reason why I mentioned the Kaya McCullough, you know, uh, interview that we did in that, like, she was leaned on in a really unfair way to have these conversations. She's so young. She's brand new to the league, just got drafted. And she's having to, you know, process racism in America at, at, at a height that is painful, but then also having to discuss that with white teammates who just don't get it. Um, and not even teammates, it's like coaches, like people in the, in the, in the front office, you know, those, those kind of people, which has to just, it's such a burden she doesn't deserve. And, but that we have as black people. And you just kind of like Courtney mentioned, and I kind of saw the same thing in some of the players faces, like they just figured, all right, we're going to go about our business then. Like, like we've already, we're already putting out stuff, you know, the black women's player, um, collective is doing a lot of really awesome stuff. You know, they're putting out a docuseries this summer. Um, this going to chronicle a lot of players and a lot of stories. And so they've, they've been going about the work. I don't think, I think that people are like, yeah, finally they're good. They're stopped kneeling and they're going to do something. You're like, well, we, we, they've been doing things. It was really about being able to show on a, a very simple gesture, a very bare minimum gesture to show the world that we are united behind our players and the black community and black people who are suffering in this country because of racism. It has been for tech, <laughs> centuries and centuries and that was never able to happen. And the fact that that never happened and that we just move on without that happening, I think that a whole lot of white people, white players included, um, and especially really should do a lot of thinking um, within themselves and ask themselves the questions of why couldn't this ever happen? Um, I don't want to hear anything about the military. A lot of black people in the military, too. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to hear all these other things about, you know, oh, my grandfather, whoever would be upset these are decisions that are a little bit bigger. And I do wish that that had happened at the very least once, but it just says so much about America that it couldn't even. The only time you can show unity is when black people are in line. And that was sad. Um, hard to transition directly back into on the field stuff. Uh, and so I'll acknowledge that. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about the NWSL as well. Um, and And even though... It's a FIFA window. The NWSL has decided to start its second season uh, in or, or start its second Challenge Cup uh, this week as, as starting its new season. Uh, we've got double headers this Friday, uh, another one this Saturday. What are some of the biggest storylines, in your opinion, for the NWSL heading into this season? Uh, I think for me, I mean, one, I I'm just like excited that like women's soccer's back in this country <laughs> like just like on a baseline I'm like super excited like not waking up at 7 30 in the morning to like get on a stream to watch some soccer um I think for me the the big storylines that I'm thinking about um one just will Portland just dominate 
everyone now, like now that they have Chris Dunn and Lindsey Horan, like, and Sophia Smith, like, I mean, some truly so many players, like, are they just, is it going to be an absolute domination? Um, I am curious about Kansas City and Louisville, um, you know, an expansion team, and then the, the move from um, out of Utah. I'm particularly interested in seeing how they fare. Um, I, I do wish with the Challenge Cup, and I understand why they did it this way, that it's, you know, mostly just going to be regionally. Um, and so we actually won't even see Louisville play Kansas City, even though they're, like, closer geographically than I think anyone else that they're playing. Uh, but, yeah, for me, it's I'm really curious about Portland. Um, I'm also curious about Sky Blue. I mean, I will hopefully get the chance to go to their games and see soccer in person, which is going to be thrilling. Uh, but also, you know, seeing how Kudrow come back in the mix. I know she got, you know, got moved around a lot this offseason. Um, Midge Purse is going to be a forward again. Free also, Midge. We won. Free we Midge won. won. Uh, when <laughs> I think, was it, I think Jonathan Tanner all tweeted that. I like, was like, oh, I'm so excited. Um, and so, yes. And also just, you know, continuing the Challenge Cup and because um, I think that was, you know, really, really good of having having the NWSL be the first sport back after, you know, lockdown. And so really just also continuing that growth and being able to, you know, go on a Saturday and turn on my TV and see the NWSL and CBS uh, Sports Network if they choose to air a game to me is I'm so excited. No, it seemed like CBS did a good job with it last season. Um, I know, you know, like if you want to see all the games, you're going to need to get uh, the pay streaming service. Um, but they are going to have the final again on big CBS. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I feel like the NWSL has a pretty good new deal, uh, for people, at least in terms of being able to see the games. Um, yeah. And I'm excited too. You know, we've had a few guests on the show, including my uh, childhood friends who who own this Kansas City team, and and just very happy for them and and how that's gone. Bummed out for Utah fans, obviously, uh, to lose their team. But this is a league that seems to be moving in the right direction. And I think once we get post pandemic, that you know, their their viewership increased quite a bit during the pandemic. Who knows what they might be able to do post pandemic and and with all the sponsorships they're getting right now. Um, I want to ask you about Women's UEFA Champions League. We've got three of the four semifinalists now, Chelsea, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. The other one will be Lyon or PSG, depending on uh, whenever they're able to to finish that post their, their COVID situations. Who do you like to win this tournament this season? And is it not Lyon, which seems to win it every season? I'll, I'll take this one. Uh, I do think I'll start with the easy question. Um, I do think I'm going to this isn't this isn't the limb that it used to be, but I do think that Lyon is not going to win the Champions League this season. I think there are a lot of teams who have the capacity to beat them. PSG is one of them. Um, unfortunately, the referee made a terrible call. <laughs> I want to get mad about it again, but uh, that Formiga penalty yes. handball situation terrible. was awful. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about it, um, but I do. PSG is capable of overturning that when they, when they get to play, and hopefully we get to see like full strength squads. With this COVID situation, we might not, so that also factors in. But Barcelona is amazing. Uh, what they did to Manchester City in the first leg was great for me, hilarious <laughs> for me actually. I loved it. Um, 
And I, and I also loved in the second leg, you know, they changed some things in Roosevelt. Hey, what do you know? She's actually a good <laughs> midfielder. Um, she got in midfield and played very well against Barcelona. So, like, you know, that we kind of got... I got I got both things I wanted in that tie, and Manchester City goes home and Barcelona moves on. Uh, speaking as a Chelsea fan, my bias is completely open there. Um, you know, and then and then Chelsea themselves, you know, overcoming Wolfsburg, which has been the team that knocked them off, knocked them out of that tournament eight times. Eight times. Can you imagine losing the same team eight times? It's just it's it's just like so tough. And to turn that into a five-one aggregate win has to really, really like mean something to that team and make them believe that they can get to the final. So because I am a Chelsea supporter, I'm not going to say it because I don't want to jinx it. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't think, I don't think Leon is going to like grab the crown again. If they do, that's going to be an incredible feat of having to go through the teams that they're going to have to go through. Um, And also seeing like it's so funny to me because when we think about Barcelona, you think it's you know such a huge storied club and all these things, and also not being able to really watch them unless you get Barca TV, which I don't think. I mean, I know that I got it for the Champions League, but I wasn't you know necessarily super seeking it out. Um, but they are just their forward, like their entire team is so good. Um, and I mean, we always talk about the goal differential, but what scoring like. 99 goal like their goal differential is absolutely ridiculous it's up in the like high 80s low 90s across all competitions um is really insane but I also think with the second leg against Man City we did we did see did see ways of like that of ways that they could you know possibly be stopped um but yeah I I mean of course I'm going to support Chelsea and want us to win that I am a Chelsea supporter and also thinking about our front line like Sam Kerr had a great game Fran Kirby is seems relatively unstoppable at this moment um and as well as you know Pernilla Harder is also just kind of unstoppable on uh the foreign on the firing line so whatever happens it's I know that they're going to be great games I just also hope that they're not marred by terrible refereeing decisions like we saw last time yeah, no, me too. I'm also, I'm really excited about the rest of this tournament. Uh, the fact that I think we should be able to see these games without too much difficulty. Next season's going to be even better uh, with the announcement that UEFA is going to package all the video rights together from a certain le- you know stage of the tournament onward. And, and they've got a new organization. It seems like they're going to have more sponsorship and this tournament's going to get the support it has deserved for a really long time. I hope, I think. Um, In terms of there being more money than ever going into European women's club soccer, that seems to be the case. Uh, You mentioned the the new contract, uh, the new TV contract that the WSL has in England moving forward. Do you think we'll continue to see more U.S. women's national team players leaving the NWSL for for Europe with Europe getting more money? Yeah, honestly, I do think so. I, I don't think necessarily it'll be, you know, a super long-term thing, but I think now, as opposed to before, that option has really, really widened. And also knowing, for example, the poss- like the continued kind of uncoupling between U.S. soccer and the NWSL, um, I do think we're going to see more players going on going across to Europe that's also not necessarily a bad thing I think for a lot of soccer fans are like oh no like Alex Morgan is going to Tottenham like the NWSL is over and it's like no it's 
<laughs> like literally no it's not like it'll be fine um but i do think for example of the ownership group of leon buying um the Seattle Rain and changing their name to OL Rain will open up a lot of possibilities for even just like small things like loan moves, um, you know, between the two clubs. So I do think more players are going to go across to Europe eventually, but I also think, you know, that also means maybe more European players will come to the NWSL. And I think it's just going, it's the growth of it and the continued investment will be good. Um, and also, for example, being able to see players, you know, not make like chump change and actually being paid what they should be paid is it it's going to be a great thing regardless and I'm also excited to you know be able to go I mean Crystal Dunn played for Chelsea and I wish that I was paying attention at that point because I would do anything for a Crystal Dunn Chelsea jersey right now but even seeing you know Roosevelt, Sam Mewis, Abby Dahlkemper playing at Manchester City raises the to me raises um, the profile of the NWSL and also raises the profile of the WSL so it's going to be good no matter what we're wrapping up here with andre carlisle and courtney stith really appreciate you taking this much time um what are some of the things you want to be doing on your podcast in the future i'll take that because i do i do do some of the content planning uh which from my you know my journalistic background i enjoy doing um i'll be modest you do basically 99 (laughs) percent of it <laughs> uh, can never not be modest. It's, it's literally, I cannot accept a compliment ever in my life. Um, but, you know, I'm really excited to do even more audio storytelling. I, I love, you know, our interviewing and things like that, but, you know, doing deep dives, for example, in the college programs like Stanford, UNC, seeing the amount of black players they've produced over generations uh, is one thing that's really, really exciting to me. And also, you know, opening a space for black women in soccer where you can come on a podcast and, like, you know, we're not always going to ask you, like, okay, so you had, you got sent off in the last match, let's talk about it, but instead, like, hey, who has the aux cord in the dressing room, or, like, what's your favorite pump-up song, um, you know, like, what else are you doing outside of the, outside of soccer, um, and really opening that platform for them is something that's exciting for me. Courtney Stith and Andre Carlisle host a new podcast is absolutely terrific. It's called the Diaspora United Podcast. You can find Courtney on Twitter at Courtney Stith, S-T-I-T-H. Andre is on Twitter at not underscore Carlisle. The podcast is on Twitter at Diaspora UTD Pod. Courtney and Andre, congrats on everything you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. Yes, this was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Courtney Stith and Andre Carlisle, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.